0: Welcome to Season 4 of Invested in Our New Reality. We started this podcast at the beginning of the pandemic to give Ottawa's business community a place to speak candidly about the challenges and opportunities they've faced during these unprecedented times. And boy, have they delivered. Not only have business leaders from a wide variety of sectors shared lessons learned, but they've offered practical advice on how to innovate and thrive in the future. Things we all need to hear right now. My name is Siobhan Hassel McIntosh, and I'm the Diversity and Belonging Lead at Shopify. I'm a board member at Invest Ottawa, and I'm really glad to have you with us as we explore the path forward for business and industry at this transformative point in history. So let's get started. One clear thing COVID-19 has showed us is that even if we're making progress when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion, when it comes to funding entrepreneurs, we still have a long ways to go. In fact, a 2018 study by Harlem Capital, a VC fund that backs diverse founders in the US, noted that just 105 companies with Black or Latinx founders have raised rounds of 1 million or more since 2000. Our next guest is helping us change all of that. Mandela Dixon is the founder and CEO of Founder Gem, the leading online program training underrepresented founders on how to raise money to scale their tech startups. And she's here today to talk about how we can ensure that all entrepreneurs with a great idea and a solid plan can get their businesses funded. Mandela, it is really terrific to have the chance to speak with you. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Ab. I'm so excited to be here. Awesome. So Mandela, let's start with the basics. What is Founder Gym and why did you start it?
1: Yeah, so Founder Gym is my company. It is known as the number one online training program, helping underrepresented founders like women, Black founders, Latinx founders, Indigenous founders, veteran founders, LGBTQIA founders, teaching them how to basically secure capital to scale their tech startups. We're a six-week cohort program, and people come to us from all walks of life. And within that time frame, we basically connect them to the right curriculum, investors, funded founders, and structure and accountability so that they can actually close the gap between where they are and where they want to be.
0: Awesome. I was like, that is like a great way to describe everything. And you gave us a bit of a synopsis about when we talk about underrepresented founders, who you're talking about, right? So heard some of that. One of the questions I have with you is that's like a lot of types of founders that you're helping to support. And we know that within that there's all the intersectionalities that exist. Mm -hmm. So how did you decide how you're going to define underrepresented founders and how do you go about supporting them based on their unique and specific needs based on the communities they're a part of?
1: Yeah, really important question, Chav. So underrepresented in the way in which we define that founder's Gym actually came from my previous experience working at a venture capital firm in Silicon Valley that was called Kapoor Capital. One of the managing partners there is Dr. Frida Kapoor Klein, and she is like fifty years plus of experience working in diversity, equity, and inclusion, and really pioneered a lot of the thought leadership in the tech industry around this uh, topic. And so the way they define it at Kapoor Capital is underrepresented, basically. Basically means is that if your representation in the overall population significantly, right, mm-hmm. is, is higher than what it is in the tech industry, right, then you're underrepresented. So I'll give an example, 50% of the population is women, yet only 13% of venture-backed Founders are women, right? Like 16% of the US population are identify as Black, African American, whereas less than 1% of venture capital goes to black founders. So basically when there's a mismatch in your representation, a huge mismatch, um, you fall into the bucket of underrepresented.
0: I love that. That is like such a good way to define that because I know that there's sometimes a lot of confusion around that point of like, Mm -hmm. how do you define underrepresented? How should we be defining underrepresented? And then getting into the side of the question around how do you build for community? And something that I always reiterate Over and over and over again, I'm sure folks are are tired of hearing from me about this point, but I always say it's important to build with community versus just building for community. And I know that's something that you think about and consider a lot when it comes to the work you're doing at Founder Gym.
1: Yeah, for sure. So to me, you know, I'm glad you repeat that. That needs to be repeated over and over and over again, because I do think that a lot of the models being pushed right now are one where they're just going to come in and save the day, right? And there's a long lineage of those practices that don't necessarily work out, especially in favor of the community you're aiming to serve. And so I see working with the communities, really taking the time to truly understand who it is that you are trying to service, what their actual problems are, not perceived problems, and really building with empathy in mind, but more so of ensuring that the leadership of the initiative that is coming in to support the community represents the community right? I think it is so important that people see themselves in the leadership that is aspiring to help them because oftentimes that Physical uh, realm of diversity sends signals to people whether or not they belong. This is a safe space. This is a caring space. And it goes a long way when organizations invest in leadership that represent that community. So I think that's really important. And honestly, that's been one of our biggest competitive advantages. Our whole team is underrepresented, right? And so it's not far-fetched that we are able to attract an underrepresented community, right? Because there is a a automatic kind of extension of uh, belonging, right? That they, that they have for us. And I would say the things to really keep in mind when you are trying to service underrepresented groups, specifically in entrepreneurship, is just really taking the time to get educated on what the disparities are. Mm -hmm. Like one of the biggest disparities, Shav, is network, right? If you don't let, let's just pretend and, and, and give us a simple example of um, a sports analogy, right? Like, if you were trying to become a masterful cricket player, right? But you don't know anyone who's ever played cricket, right? You can read the books, you can watch the YouTube videos, you can listen to the podcast, you can go to the the, the sports events. And um, but it doesn't mean that you're going to have the insider information from people who've actually mastered the game and can deconstruct it for you and to help you level up, get you play into the right trainers, the right camps, all this stuff, right? If you don't know those people, the same thing applies to this world of raising capital. If you don't know anybody who's raised capital or who deploys capital as an investor, you're not really getting the unwritten rules of how to play the game. You'll get the written rules that are showcased online for public consumption, but you won't get the unwritten rules that really the industry plays by. Um, So that's one big part of it. I'd say another thing that is missing, a huge disparity, is the knowledge, right? Along with the network comes the knowledge, but then I think the support structures, right? If you just look at the wealth gap, right, irrespective of entrepreneurship, Certain groups have more access to wealth than others. And that wealth is basically oxygen to launching a company. If you don't have any oxygen in your tank, it's really hard to let a launch even survive. Mm-hmm. And why does it remain so difficult for underrepresented
0: founders to raise capital? You gave us some of those stats a little bit earlier. Mm-hmm. What do we need to do to change that?
1: It takes a village. I know that sounds corny and cliche, and we've heard it before, but it's so true. This is a multi-pronged problem that needs a multifaceted solution. And Founder Jim is trying to chip away at this problem in one angle, right? So we're trying to basically close the education and network gap for underrepresented founders to level up in a short timeframe. And what's, what we're seeing is not only are our founders raising for the, oftentimes the first time, we have the first black woman in the state of Louisiana who's ever raised over a million, the first black woman woman in the state of Tennessee to ever raise over a million came out of Founder Gym. The youngest Black woman to ever raise over a million came out of Founder Gym. The only, the first Black person to ever raise over a million on the uh, equity crowdfunding platform Republic came out of Founder Gym. A uh, um, uh, Caucasian woman out of Seattle with uh, four girls under five years old raised $30 million was trained by Founder Jim, right? Like, One of the things we're chipping away at is really showing people the playbook of the unwritten rules for raising capital. And these founders are now becoming investors, right? So Founder Jim's actual theory of change is to train people on how to secure capital as a founder so that they're successful and then can become the investors. And they're the ones with the purse strings. But this is Founder Jim's effort at a really big systemic problem. Silicon Valley, venture capital, tech startups do not operate in a silo. They are a reflection of the broader societal ills and inequities. And I think until we address that as a whole, and and instead of just saying, what about this? Then I think it will continue to be exacerbated because we really have to address some of the core education gaps, access gaps, opportunity gaps that are very widespread, yes, in the tech industry, but also outside of it.
0: Absolutely. I love that societal change that needs to happen in order to support this ecosystem specifically. I mean, what tips would you give any founders who might be listening and are having some trouble or challenges raising uh, those who might be on the verge of giving up or those who might be heading into their next pitch?
1: Mm mm-hmm. Excuse me. So uh, good question. I think that if you are knocking on doors and no one's answering, are <laughs> you getting booted to the curb? I think it, 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 it's feedback for you. So one thing to just understand is that one way to take out the personal sting of rejection is to turn this into a numbers game. If anyone's in sales, you've heard of something called the sales funnel. Right. Mm. And at the top of the funnel, right, is basically all of your prospective clients, people who could potentially purchase your product. And then what you're going to do with those is you may email those people, right? And maybe you have reached out to 100 people, maybe 50 of them respond. And then okay. out of the 50 of them respond, maybe 10 of them get on the phone with you. Now, the 10 of them get on the phone with you, maybe two of them say yes, right? This is called a sales funnel. And fundraising is very similar to running a sales process is that if you are experiencing problems, what you need to go do is go back and look at your funnel and see where people are dropping off, right? So if you're emailing 100 investors and you're getting zero responses, then I'm going to tell you, well, the problem probably lies with your email, right? So what's in your subject line? What's in the body of the text? How are you presenting yourself? Maybe you're including your debt or maybe you're not. But I think just deconstructing where you're going wrong by looking at where investors are dropping off in your pipeline is important. And the process usually is step one, you email the founder. Step two, you're getting either a phone call or in this day and age, a Zoom meeting. Then after that, you may go into a partner meeting. Then after that, you go into something called due diligence, where the investment team will do more digging into your company's background, its traction before making a final decision as to whether or not to invest. So again, knowing that those are the steps of this sales process where are you getting the nose? Because wherever you're getting the no's, I really recommend on zoning in on that and really figuring out what's going right and what's going wrong. And I'll say one of the biggest mistakes that founders make oftentimes is they are pitching the wrong people. There is something that mostly every venture capital firm has, at least all the ones that I know of, and I know of a lot, is they have a website. And on that website, it will tell you their investment thesis, which is basically what they invest in, what they don't. I strongly recommend people listen to that because they're telling you the truth, right? If someone says they only invest in consumer-facing products and you're a B2B SaaS product, you may not want to pitch that investor because you're wasting their time and you're wasting your time. So I think step number one is just to make sure you're even pitching the right people. I love that. And notes, notes. I hope you all are taking notes because
0: I know that I definitely am. And and on the flip side of that, um, what advice do you have for investors? How and why do they need to change their game when it comes to the types of businesses and the types of founders they're investing in?
1: Yeah, this is a good question. I think that in, you know, in venture capital in the United States, I'll, I'll just uh, preface it with that: is that nine out of ten of the venture partners, which are really the people who hold the power at the venture firms, are white men. Right. So I'm going to talk to the white men who are venture partners because you all are the ones in power in this game right now. And I think one thing to understand is that you have um, overrepresentation. Right. We talk about underrepresentation. You are overrepresented here. Right, and I think just acknowledging that and really taking a look at what systems are in place that perpetrate this overrepresentation of white men in venture partner roles is really important to stop and acknowledge. And what privileges may you have that other groups do not have? Right, that have allowed you to get into this position, and just recognizing that, just being honest with yourself about that, I think is step number one because it's not a level playing field. Right. You were born in probably into different circumstances than a lot of other people. And I think that the lack of recognition of that is one of the reasons this problem continues to perpetuate, because people don't fully acknowledge that this is not a level playing field. It's not fair. Right. And so I think just acknowledging it's not fair is step number one. Now it's all like, well, what are you going to do about it? Right. And just like I was telling Shav earlier about organizations who want to work with helping underrepresented founders and investing in leadership that represents those founders, the same thing applies for investment firms. Look around your table, look at your website. Who are you working with? Right. Do they look like you? Do they share your background? Do they go to the schools you went to, right? That sends a signal to the ecosystems and sends a signal to founders whether or not they think that you're the investor for them or that they belong in your portfolio. So I think just doing an audit of self-awareness is really important. I think another thing is broadening your scope of what you value, right? Of course, I know every investor values like, Market size and a go to market strategy and opportunity to, uh, to um, generate revenue and the team composition, right? Like, I understand all of that. But there are other things that you may be overlooking that if you gave it the time of day, it would help you see different founders in new light, right? We have something we call like differences of strengths and just recognizing that what makes a founder different is actually one of their superpowers right? Like a lot of investors wrote me off very early on. I didn't have an Ivy League degree. I wasn't technical. I didn't have a a MBA. I didn't know anybody. I didn't get to have the plug, right? But what I did have was I was building an ed tech business and I was building a business for educators and I was a very well-networked educator and I also was very well-networked on the administrative side and I knew how to sell to schools, right? So even though I didn't check the box on all those other things, my difference was that I knew how to sell to schools and that was the holy grail for breaking into the school system and getting schools to buy your product. Right. So that's one way. Again, investors can not look at the traditional pedigree of someone and value differences. Another thing is distance travel. Right. We go back to, again, where people start their journey. Right. The fact that I was born to social rights activists who don't like they were the first in their families to go to college. Right. And the fact that I've climbed all the way up where I have versus someone else who may be on my level, but they were born into that privilege. They were born into this ecosystem. My distance travel counts for a lot. And everything I've had to do just to be on this interview right now with Shav, having this conversation should count for something. That's grit, that's determination, that's will. So those are just some things that I think investors should keep top of mind. Exactly, and and I think I would say that the
0: companies that you can be investing in that are founded by underrepresented folks are amazing companies. It's not a matter of like charity or lowering the bar. Like there are some fantastic businesses that are out there.
1: Yes. And if you don't believe us, I want you to go look at Play VS, right? They raised over a hundred million dollars. It's the youngest black, person to ever raise that amount. He's 26 years old. His name's Delane Parnell. There is Calendly, um Tope, a founder from Nigeria, who's based now in Atlanta, and he is on track to become the first Black founder unicorn, right? There is um, Phaedra, the female founder for, for a company called Promise, who just raised an impressive amount of money from top tier VC firms. So it's happening every day. The proof's out there. You can't tell me that it's not possible. Right. Because I'm going to point you to all sorts of articles and people who, who prove it is possible. But if you keep telling yourself the same narrative of, oh, I don't know where they are. My question to people when they say, like, I don't know what to do, I just can't find them. Really? You don't know what to do. So what happens when all these other companies, they don't know what to do, but you roll up your sleeves and you get in your think tank and you figure it out? Like, why all of a sudden when it comes to diversity, equity, inclusion, your growth hacking just goes out the window? Like, you don't know how to do it. Like, well, I don't know. Really? You are supposed to be some of the most intelligent, forward-thinking, innovative people in the world. But when it comes to diversity, equity, inclusion, you just throw up your hands up and say, I don't know. That's that's not it, that's that's an excuse. Yep, that's not the one. I love that answer, thank you.
0: I talked off the top a little bit about COVID and making the issues of inequality and equity so much clearer for everyone to see, even though they've arguably been there this whole time. Has COVID made things harder or easier for underrepresented founders when it comes to raising?
1: I think, um, sorry, I just found myself getting emotional. I think that these, ex- just what you said, Sh- Shaf, is COVID didn't create these problems. They were always there. They just exposed them, exposed what was already there put it on the front page for everyone to see made them face it made them look at it and then even beyond COVID, let's talk about george floyd let's talk about the black lives matter movement there's many things that have been happening in this last year um that have compounded right people's awareness of the inequities that that permeate the world and i think that to answer your question it hasn't made it harder or easier I would definitely say one of the things people underestimated about the 2008 economic recession, and that was when I graduated, was how much wealth it erased from the Black community. And so any little gains that were made, right, just whew wiped out again, you're starting from not even zero, negative, negative 10, negative 100. And just what that does to being able to even invest in another business, start another business, the lack of capital is one of the biggest reasons why businesses aren't able to be started. It's not a matter of talent, right? It's a matter of access to this capital. And so in one sense, like if we look about COVID, we look about small businesses and how many small businesses went out of business, right? Of course, it has really made it harder for certain business owners because of COVID. And on the flip side, I would say it's COVID, one of the blessings of COVID, it's been a forcing function, I think, for people who've been sleeping on the power of technology to wake up and get on the technology train wake up and leverage tools at their disposal where they can sell their product or service and reach the masses beyond those who can patron their four walls and their physical environment. Um, Another thing that I think has been a silver lining in this all is I think it's woken up people to just the fragility of life and the fragility of just feeling a safety net, right? And I think that the only thing guaranteed in life is change and it's just recognizing that it is important to have entrepreneurial chops so that no matter what happens in the economy, if you're laid off, if something happens with your current business, you need to be able to turn a dime into a dollar in any market conditions. It's a survival skill. And so I actually think entrepreneurship has taken off in ways it hasn't before. Whereas before I think people were like, yeah, that's nice, maybe I'll do it. It's really been a forcing function for a lot more people to get that skill set that they thought maybe was a nice to have. It really is a must have. Absolutely. I mean, we've gone through a lot and you have given some
0: very actionable advice for folks to be able to take and leverage. And I love that holding people to account. There's no excuse for not, you know, investing in finding founders. You know, there's no excuse for not engaging with things around diversity, equity, and inclusion. What's next for you? What's next for Founder Jim? Where do you go now?
1: Yeah, you know, well, one thing is we are operating our cohorts still. So I I mentioned this at the beginning, we operate six-week cohorts. They're 100% virtual. They've always been virtual. We have some founders, I was telling Shab before, who are based in Canada. We also have 25 other countries represented across six continents. So we are a global community. And we're currently accepting applications for founders who are interested in our program. But I would say in general, you know, I want to continue eating our own dog food which is kind of like an industry term, but it basically means I want to keep listening to what the founders need. And this is a business advice for everyone, is that really the best way to stay in business is to keep your pulse on the people. Really take the time to understand their pain points, not just what they were two years ago before COVID, but now what could they be going into the future? And because business at the end of the day is your ability to build a product or or service that solves someone else's problem to the degree that they will pay for, right? So Founder Jim's doing the same thing. We wanna stay in contact with underrepresented founders. We wanna see how our graduates are progressing, right? Where they're reaching like stalls, where um, how they're moving into investing, right? And just seeing where we can position our unique skill sets and abilities and network to help them be successful. This whole movement, and it is a movement, I do call what we do a movement, is really about wealth distribution. Yes. This goes back to grave inequities that have been part of our society for a very long time. And this is righting certain wrongs and using the technology sector to do that, helping people understand how to use technology and capital to create wealth. Because when you put more wealth into underserved marginalized communities, those leaders are gonna look after those communities, gonna look after those people, gonna make sure legislation is passed that is favorable to their outcomes. And so for us, Founder Jim is a movement. It is about wealth redistribution. I love this. I can't wait to see
0: more from founder Jim. And Della, it has been amazing to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for the work that you and your team continue to do and continue to push forward. This is how we create systemic change and disrupt the system. So thank you so much.
1: Yes, thank you Tusha for having me. It's been an honor. I appreciate it. And I want to thank you our loyal listeners too. I hope you
0: enjoyed today's discussion with Mandela as much as I did. And if so, please share a link to the podcast with your social media followers so that we can spread the message far and wide. Of course, we have a new episode of Invested in Our New Reality coming up next week. But until then, I'm Siobhan Hassel-McIntosh. Stay strong, stay healthy, and stay safe.